I do want to ask you to find Hebrews chapter 10 in your Bibles. I want to bring a message this morning entitled, Let Us. We're going to look at exhortations that impact our worship and service. And so I want to ask you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We'll begin reading in verse 19 and we'll read down through verse 31. The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Father, as we meet for church today, we are reminded of what the psalmist said when he wrote, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. What a privilege and an honor that we have to come into your presence each week and lift high the name of Jesus. Lord, we're reminded that he said if he be lifted up, he would draw all men unto himself. God, we thank you that you're building your church. And as Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And what a wonderful thing it is to see in the life of the church as your Holy Spirit works in the hearts of men and women and boys and girls and does that divine surgery that only he can do. And Father, we pray for that transforming work here today. That where conviction and conversion is needed, that you would work accordingly. Where there are those who need comfort and consolation and encouragement and peace. God, we pray that you would give them that comfort and your perfect peace that passes all understanding. God, we stand on that promise that you are indeed here because Jesus said where two or three are gathered together in my name, I'm in their midst. So Father, work today. Help us to be out of the way and humbly receive your word. Lord, thank you for the call that you have upon each of us to be the church. 
Help us to understand that more clearly today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Gary Elder writes, Growing up along the Atlantic coast, I spent long hours working on intricate sandcastles. He says, I would turn simple sandcastles into entire city blocks. But one year, for several days in a row, I was accosted by the same group of bullies who smashed my creations. They would get a running start and kick as hard as they could, scattering my creations all over the beach. Finally, I tried an experiment. Not the thing to do, but keep in mind, I was young. I placed cinder blocks and other chunks of concrete in the bases of my creations. Then I built magnificent sand structures over top of the blocks. Sure enough, just as I was finishing up one day, here they came. I ran and from a safe distance watched as they sprinted toward my creations at full speed and reared back to kick them like a football. Mission accomplished. <laughs> he writes, many people see the church in grave peril from, dangerous, uh, from various dangers in society, but they forget that the church is built upon a rock. In fact, the rock, Jesus Christ, who said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus loves his church. In Ephesians 5, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her in order to make her holy by cleansing her with the washing of water by the word, so as to present the church to himself in splendor without a spot or wrinkle or anything of the kind. As we gather today, summer is almost over. The kids begin school this week. The supplies have been bought. The new clothes have been purchased. For most, the beach trips are over. The days out on, out on the lake will diminish as the temperatures drop. Folks, let us be reminded today of the importance of what we are about as the people of God. We need to be reminded of our mission and of our ministry and of the consistent role that we're to have day in and day out and week in and week out as the body of Christ. For all the blemishes and warts that the modern day church may exhibit, it is still God's plan to reach a lost world for Jesus Christ. The people in many places of the world would love to have the opportunity that is afforded to us every week to come into a place like this and to freely worship without any fear of being arrested or persecuted or put in prison. And as we do gather here for worship, it provides us with a sense of true north. It's like the testimony of a lady concerning her sister. She said, my sister bought a new car with all of the latest technology on it. One day in the rain, she hit a knob that she thought was the windshield wipers. 
But instead, a message flashed up that said, drive the vehicle in 360 degrees. When she got home, she pulled out the owner's manual to figure out what this light meant. She learned that when she hit the wrong knob, she had turned off the car's internal compass. And so to reset it, the car was to be driven in a complete circle, pointed north, and then the compass would reset itself. Each week as we worship, our internal compass is being reset to true north. Now there are some things that the writer of Hebrews would have us remember about our relationship to God and about our relationship to one another. And he presents these commands in a series of exhortations and each one of them starts with the phrase, let us. And we're going to look at three of those this morning and as we do we're going to be reminded of our privileges and responsibilities as the church. Because you see, the body of Christ involves both privileges and responsibilities. The first command, he says, let us approach God. Pick up reading with me again in verse 19. He says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that is open for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh... And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now in this first admonition, he is addressing the command that we have in our lives as Christians to worship God. And as he gives this command to worship God, he would have us to remember what Christ has accomplished in our behalf. You see, the New Testament believer needs to commit to worship with a sense of wonder over what God has done. Lying behind the worship of the church, there is approximately 4,000 years of Old Testament history where the stage was being set for what God was going to do in the new covenant through his son, the Lord Jesus. Now I want us to think for a moment today about that uh, 4,000 years of Old Testament history. And I want you to remember with me this morning some of the various ceremonies that they went through as part of their worship. Now have in your mind with me for a moment the, uh, the, the wilderness tabernacle and then the temple that they were later to rebuild there in Jerusalem. And as you went to worship at the tabernacle or the temple, one thing that would strike you if you were a Jew is that you would be met by several different barriers. First of all, you had the outer court, and in the outer court would be the basin of water and the, uh, the, the, sacri- the, the altar of sacrifice. And there in that outer court, that was the outer court of the Gentiles. And so if you were not a Jew, that's as far as you could go. And then beyond the court of the outer court of the Gentiles, you would come next to the court of the men, for the Jewish men. And you could worship there, you could approach God there, but you could go no further. 
And then after the court of men, there was the, uh, excuse me, the court of women, then there was the court of men. So the men and women had their various courts. There was the Gentiles first, then the women, then the men. And then after that series of uh, partitioned off areas, you would come to another set of partitioned off areas. The first one of those being the, the court of the priests. And so if you were just a general priest, that's where you would carry out your week-to-week functions as a priest and the day-to-day functions. And there in the, uh, there in the court of the priest, you would find the, uh, the altar of incense, the, the golden lamp stand, and the table of showbread. And each one of these courts and each one of the items that was found in them had had a great deal of significance about worship in the Old Testament. And then beyond the court of the priest, there was of course the Holy of Holies where only the high priest could go one time of year when he would take the blood of the animal and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat and he would intercede for the sins of the people. And in fact, they would even tie a rope around him. And so if he were detained in there longer than they thought, they were afraid that maybe God had, had struck him dead. And so that since they couldn't go in there, they wanted some means to be able to drag him out. And so you had all these various areas in the Old Testament tabernacle. And then again the the temple. And then on top of these various areas of worship you had all of their dietary codes and regulations. You had their holy days and their feasts and their festivals. And all of those things served a very distinct purpose. You see, all the nations around Israel worshipped idols essentially according to how they wanted to worship. They would make a God in their image and they would bow down to it and they would worship. The prophet Isaiah makes fun of their idolatry. He says, you know, it's like a man who goes out into the woods. He chops down a tree with some of the wood. He builds him a house. With other portions of that same wood, he lights a fire and he warms himself with other portions of it. He cooks his food and with still other portions of it, he carves it into an idol. He bows down to it and he says, you are my God, deliver me. And of course, Isaiah laughs about that. I mean, did they not get it? What they were doing with these various portions of the wood? And then how they were making an idol in their own image. But Israel was being taught that the true and the living God is the one who's in charge. We're made in his image, not not he in our image. He created us. We're to worship Him. And so in the Old Testament, they were given all these specific life and and worship guidelines to remind them that God is holy and He's the one who desires our worship. He deserves our worship. And He's the one who prescribes how we are to worship. In fact, even in Israel, if they worshipped Him incorrectly, they they, they could be struck dead. I think of several instances in the Old Testament where that very thing happened. 
You'll recall as 1 Samuel opens up, the Philistines are gaining power of the Israelites and, and, and the Israelites call for the ark of God to be brought in and by the ark of God being brought in, they think military victory is going to be a sure thing but the Philistines defeat the Israelites and then they carry off the ark of God and all Israel is in mourning. But because the Philistines have the ark of God in their possession where it wasn't supposed to be, God began judging the Philistines. And all these different Philistine cities, the people began dying and they said, boy, we've got to send the ark back. If we don't, we're all going to be destroyed. And so they sent the ark back and as the ark is being pulled by the oxen back into Israel, uh, the people of Israel see it, they rejoice. But one family among them doesn't rejoice and 70 of them die. And then in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6, David is taking the ark back up uh, to Jerusalem. And a couple of young men are in charge of carrying the ark up and the oxen stumble and the one at the back of the ark, he, he reaches forth with his, with his hand to touch it, to, to steady it. And because he does that, God strikes him dead. And then we read also in Leviticus 10, it says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, they offered up false fire. They each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. And then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said among those who are near me. I will be sanctified and before all the people I will be glorified and Aaron held his peace. So in all those cases even people in Israel died. They were being reminded of how serious worship is and they were being reminded that God is a consuming fire and that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so all through the Old Testament this foundation was being laid. God is not like the God of the nations. He's holy. We come to the New Testament and what does Jesus say about worship? That it must be done in spirit and in truth. But in the New Testament we learn that Jesus Christ is our high priest. The writer of Hebrews tells us some things that we now enjoy. He reminds us throughout the book of Hebrews that everything we now have in the new covenant, everything we have in Jesus is better. That's a key word in the book of Hebrews, better. Christ has a better name. He's the Son of God. He's better than the angels. He's a better high priest. The other priests were only human. They sinned. They, they also died. And so they had to be continually replaced. Christ is over a better sanctuary, the heavenly sanctuary of which the earthly was but a type. And of course Christ offered a better sacrifice. And he only had to do that one time at Calvary. And so the Jews who had come to faith in Jesus Christ are being reminded that everything about the new covenant is superior to the old covenant. The old covenant is now obsolete. In fact, God is not even dealing with worshipers anymore on the basis of the old covenant. Now what was the point? 
The point was, what he's trying to get at here is that they must not go back. Because some of them were suffering terribly for being Christians. They must not look around them at their family and friends and revert back to old ways. They must move forward in Christ. They must grow in their relationship to Jesus Christ. And so that brings us down to this first admonition where he says, let us draw near. He's speaking here of worship. We can worship with boldness. Not because of anything we've done, but because Christ has opened for us this new way. Aren't you glad you don't have to do the way they did in the Old Covenant? If you were a a herdsman or a farmer, you'd have to go out to your flocks and you'd have to get a lamb or a goat or you'd have to take doves or a bull and, and you'd have to take that down to the temple and the priest would kill it and sprinkle the blood and the priest would go into the temple on your behalf and represent you before God. Again, he would have to go before God on your behalf because you could not go directly and this elaborate sacrificial system you had, to, uh, you had to do all this and take it to the priest aren't you glad we don't have to do that today because of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice the Bible says we can go boldly into the holy of holies His sacrifice is living. The Old Testament sacrifices died. Christ died, but he's risen again. He's at the right hand of God, and he ever lives to make intercession for us. The result is that we can go boldly. Now, he's not talking here about an arrogance. He's simply saying that through Jesus Christ, you can go directly to God. You can worship in your kitchen. You can worship in your backyard. You can worship in your den. You can worship in your automobile as you're making your daily commute to work. You can worship anywhere and everywhere. Now, I'm going to have some comments about that a little bit later on. But as believers in Jesus Christ, those who repented of our sins and and placed our faith in Jesus Christ, he's saying that you and I, because Jesus is our high priest and we don't need any other, we can go directly into the presence of God and we can commune with God and we can worship God and we can fellowship with Him there and we can let Him transform our lives. What a privilege we have today. You don't have to simply call your preacher or deacon or Sunday school teacher and say, hey, can you go make prayers for me or make a sacrifice for me or worship for me? You can worship yourself. He says here we can go with a true heart and full assurance. Full assurance that through Christ we're accepted by God. In fact, Paul says in Romans 8.1 There is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And so he reminds us that, that as we have this awesome privilege to go before God, we can do so with this full assurance. But now as we do so with this full assurance, we still need to deal with personal sin in our lives. And so that's why he goes into phrases like hearts sprinkled and, and, and bodies washed with water. And so this would remind the Jewish believer that God's standards of holiness are still in place. 
Worship involves repentance and confession and change. In fact, if our worship doesn't prompt us in some way to deal with sin in our lives, then true worship is not, has not taken place. But I want to ask you, is worship a normal part of your life? Is it a regular part of your life? Because what a shame that God has accomplished all of this for us and then we don't even go into his presence. Could you imagine an Old Testament saint never able to go into the Holy of Holies suddenly being told he can go before God and meet with God directly and he didn't have to fear. Can you imagine an Old Testament saint trying to grapple with that concept? What an awesome thing. What a blessing. What a privilege. And when he finally got over his fear and realized that Christ has taken all of the wrath of God in his place, I imagine that he would want to flee into God's presence. But ladies and gentlemen, that's the opportunity that you and I have day in and day out in our lives. And so we are to worship. Again, he's wanting us to, to try to comprehend as best we can this new and better way. This new and better way that every one of us individually have to go before God with all of our needs, all of our concerns. As 1 Peter 5 says, we can cast all of our care upon him because he cares for us. What a privilege. So let us go boldly before him. Well, a second admonition, he says, let us persevere. In verse 23, he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. This deals with our testimony, with our experience, our words, and our life. In particular, it deals with perseverance. Now let's think about all these things a moment. When you came to Christ, what were you saying? You made a profession of faith that you were saved through Christ. Your confession involved uh, an inability to do anything on your part to justify yourself. You recognized that you were bankrupt, that you were poor in spirit. There was nothing in, in your treasure chest of spiritual deeds that you could open the lid, look down in your treasure chest and say, God, look at this. Look at what I've done. Surely you ought to love me now. No, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Uh, and the wages of sin is death. And as Paul says in Romans 3, there's no law, there's no amount of righteousness that we can do to be accepted before God. And so in our confession of faith of Jesus Christ, we're confessing that only through Christ can we be forgiven. That He was the propitiation for our sins. He paid the debt that I owe. The substitutionary atonement. He took the punishment that I deserve that, that, that I might have life. And that I might have his righteousness. Jesus Christ has done it all. And in our confession of hope and our confession of faith, that's what we're proclaiming. We're proclaiming Jesus Christ as the source of our hope. The only source of our hope. Folks, confessions are important. They indicate who or what you're trusting. 
Now these Jewish believers were being tempted by their surroundings to lighten up on their confession of Christ and go back to the temple and go back to their Jewish community. In essence, they were to make a verbal betrayal of Jesus Christ and in this verbal betrayal, they were to turn back to the old covenant. That's what some of them were being pressured to do. And so he's reminding them that they're never to waver in their confession of Jesus as Lord. He's reminding them that Jesus is faithful and he'll do what he says. He's promised us eternal life. He'll be true to his word. In fact, in 2 Timothy 2, he says even when we're not faithful, he is faithful. And so they're being admonished to persevere. Perseverance reveals true faith and conversion. Jesus talked about that in the Gospel of Matthew. He said, the one who perseveres to the end shall be saved. Now the point is not that perseverance itself saves, but a saving faith will persevere. And so you take a truly converted man and tell him that if he does not renounce Jesus Christ, he'll die. And he'll say, well, you're just going to have to kill me then because I'm going to be true to my Lord and Savior. He's admonishing them here to be like that. To take a bold stand for Jesus Christ. That whatever trials, whatever difficulties, whatever tribulation or persecution you might be going through in your life. Whoever may be around you in your family or among your friends that, that is pressuring you to turn your back on your faith in Jesus Christ. He's telling them and likewise through the Holy Spirit he's telling us today don't give in to those pressures. God will look after you. God will take care of you. God will bless you as, you as you take a bold stand for Jesus Christ. Don't you let other people around you knock you off course. This school year, whatever friends might laugh at you because of your Christian faith, you keep right on growing in your Christian faith. At work... Whoever might be in that cubicle next to you and they're making fun of you maybe having a Bible on your desk and talking about going to church and, and, and they always make little jokes about you. Don't you worry about that because he's faithful. And he'll give you in the end what he's promised. And so he's telling the Hebrew Christians here, he's saying you keep your eyes on Jesus Christ and don't let turbulent waters around you knock you off course. You need to continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. And one of these days when you see Jesus, you can hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Keep your focus. Persevere. Folks, most of us in this room here today, we have no clue what it means to go through some of what these believers were going through. But you know what? One of these days, we could face that kind of persecution. Who knows what we might be having coming down the pike in this world? 
Jesus said in this world you'll have trials and tribulations. He's plainly told us in the Bible as times press on we get closer and closer to the end that, that evilness and wickedness and unbelief is going to be on the increase and there's even going to be apostasy in the church as men's hearts grow cold and there'll be many that turn away from the Lord and, and you know what? To confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior we may face a time in the future where it really cost us something to be a Christian. There are believers in certain parts of the world now already going through that. Certain nations, for instance, in northern Africa. Certain countries around the world, to, to name the name of Jesus Christ, can, can put your freedom, your liberty, your very life in jeopardy. I think of that young man right now in Iran. Young pastor, Christian pastor, he's been imprisoned simply for naming the name of Jesus. And they keep threatening that they're going to kill him because he's a Christian. And you know what? They might. We need to pray for him and his family. They might kill him. And that might happen to you and me someday. We don't know. But if he does, he's admonishing us to persevere. God's going to be faithful. God has a very unique way of looking after those who, who are His and who belong to Him. And even if we don't see all the promises come to pass in this life, He promises us on the other side, God will reward us. So let us go before God boldly in worship. Understanding that we have a privilege and an honor now that the Old Testament Jew didn't. And then secondly, let's make sure we persevere in this. Persevere in our testimony and our confession. And don't let trials and troubles discourage us. A third let us, a third admonition. He says, let us consider one another. There beginning in verse 23, he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. He says, let us consider one another. Now folks, here he is dealing with the corporate nature of our worship. You see, as he's already pointed out, our worship can be private and bold. And it's to involve dealing personally before God with our sin and our need to, to change and repent and be conformed to the image of Christ. But here in this third admonition, he's reminding us that there's also a public element to our worship. The person who says, I can worship on the lake or I can worship on the golf course is only getting part of the picture. First, I, I seriously doubt if you really are worshiping on the golf course. I mean, I've played golf with, some, with plenty of guys in the church, and I don't think any of us were really out there worshiping. I can't think of a, a shot I've ever made in golf where all of a sudden I wanted to break out in a chorus of victory in Jesus. So 
So to say I can worship on the golf course is nothing more than an excuse to stay out of church. But beyond an excuse, it's rebellion. Because God says here that there is to be a corporate nature to our faith. And it's a command. It's not a suggestion. He says we're to consider one another. Now I want to come back to that one in a moment. But I want to deal in verse 25 with the assumption that lies in behind considering one another. What's got to take place if we're going to consider one another? He says in verse 25 that we've got to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the habit of some. We've got to be in church. Now he's not talking about missing church some Sunday because you're homesick with the flu. He's talking about the habitual complacency some have when it comes to matters of public worship. Most people in America today who profess with their lips to be Christians are not in church anywhere this morning. When you drive home this afternoon, you'll see most people out working in their yards. The, the, the gyms will be full. The tennis courts will be full. The places of business will be full. The, the lakes and the beaches and the mountains will be full. Most are just going about their normal routines. And, and the fact that it's the Lord's day doesn't come into play at all in their minds. Oh, now if you ask the majority of them, are you a Christian? They'll say, well, sure I am. But at best, they're CEOs. Christmas and Easter only. For some reason, they've concluded that the life of the church is not important. Now, is it an indication that they've not really been born again? Well, certainly for some of them. It's, it ought to be a pretty good indication of that. But that may not explain every single case. Some have just concluded for a number of reasons that they don't need the church. Now first of all, let, let me again say that it's open disobedience to God's word. And so they'll have to give an account about that. In many other cases, it also includes a misunderstanding about worship. Far too many people come to church and come to worship with, with the attitude in mind, what's in it for me? I mean, we're in a consumer age. If we want something, we go out and buy it. If Walmart doesn't have what we want, boy, we'll go somewhere else and buy it. We go grocery shopping. If we don't like what Food Line has to offer, we'll go to Harris Teeter or vice versa. We'll shop around the shopping malls until we find whatever suits our interest and our taste and whatever kind of fad we might be in at some particular time in our life. And mistakenly, we can bring that same attitude into worship. A consumer mentality. And we can go to church with the attitude, what's in it for me? And now don't get me wrong, something personal ought to happen in worship. That was the first two admonitions. But first of all, you and I, we need to realize when we come to worship, we are not the audience. God is the audience. And we're not even the primary beneficiaries. One another are to fill that role. 
He says we're to consider one another, how to, how to stir one another up and provoke one another to love and good deeds. Now that word provoke or stir up is somewhat of a, of a strange word. It literally means to irritate. We're to irritate one another. And some come to church and they do a pretty good job at that. But in this context, it means to stir up, to motivate, to exhort one another. In verse 25, he talks about exhorting one another to love and good deeds. You know what ex exhortation is. You've done it plenty of times in your life. There your son is standing at, at, at home plate and he's got the bat in his hand. He's next up at bat and you're sitting there up in the stands behind the fence and you're saying, come on son, keep your eye on the ball. You can hit it, knock it over the fence. That's exhortation. He says that's what we're supposed to do at church with one another. I like what Charles Stanley says about this. I don't think I can improve on what he's written in, in his Life Principles Bible. Uh, listen to what he writes. He says, in essence, he was instructing them to spur one another along, watch out for one another, take responsibility for one another. With that backdrop, he instructed them not to stop meeting together. They needed one another. To give up meeting together would spell disaster. In meeting together, they found the mutual encouragement they needed to keep going. God wants his children to regularly meet with other believers. He wants his people in church. Many believers don't take this admonition seriously because they don't know the reason behind it. How often I've heard this refrain. I can worship God at home. I don't need to go to church. Many believers believe the sole reason we meet together is to worship. And understandably so, that's a primary uh, a motivation. After all, we call it a worship service. But he says if worship were the only reason we're commanded to meet, then those who claim they worship at home would have a strong argument. But worship is not the sole reason we're commanded to meet together, nor is it so that we can be taught the Word of God. Again, a primary motivation of church. But we can also turn on our radios and televisions and hear good Bible teaching. On the surface, it would seem that anything we can do at church, we can do just as well at home alone. So why are we commanded to meet? Why go to church? The writer of Hebrews says it's to safeguard against drifting. Forces around us work to blow us off course. Sheer individual commitment is not enough to keep us in line. At times we feel as if our faith makes no difference. We see no fruit in our lives. And we don't seem to be making any difference in anyone else's life either. During those times we feel tempted to pull up anchor and drift. After all, isn't everybody else? Then we drag ourselves to church and discover that we're not alone. We hear others testify how God came through for them in a tight spot. Somebody else describes how the pain suffered, describes the pain suffered rather when he left the faith. A new believer tells her story and rejoices in God's grace. And then something begins to happen inside of us. We're spurred on to faithfulness. The accountability and encouragement found in church anchor us against the tides that work to sweep us away. To neglect the regular assembly of fellow Christians is to miss out on this essential element in the development of our faith. God desires a close relationship with his children. By becoming active in a local church, you safeguard yourself against missing out on all that God has for you. 
Your participation in a local church protects your personal fellowship with God. When you drift away from the family of God, it is only a matter of time until you drift away from fellowship with God. We need to meet together and encourage one another. And folks, what happens as we do that? We come to church and we've made it through some trial or tribulation in our lives and, and, and we've been comforted by God through that and God's taught us some lessons. And so as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, the God of all comfort comforts us in our affliction so that we can turn around and comfort others when they're afflicted in a like manner. And we can give them in that scenario the same comfort and encouragement that God has given to us. Somebody else comes in, they have a praise to share. What happens? Everybody joins in and rejoices. And so in the church there's this mutual accountability. There's this body life where we're blessing to one another. That's why if somebody's missed your Sunday school class for a couple of weeks, you ought to be calling them and finding out what's going on. That's one of the reasons we believe the Sunday school ministry here is kind of like the spine in a human body that kind of holds all the different parts together. Because see, if somebody misses worship service for a couple of weeks, I may not notice from up here. But if you're sitting around in a class of 15, 20, 25 people and you miss a couple of weeks, hopefully somebody notices and tries to find out what's going on. That's the corporate life of the church. Some will say, but I don't need that. But the truth of the matter is we all need that. And that's God's design for his body. Somebody else might testify to praying for a lost son or a parent. Somebody else tells of open heart surgery that they're facing that week and they need the prayers of God's people. Somebody else tells of trials they're facing at work. Maybe a financial trial. And everybody pitches in and helps. That's what church is about. And we see in the New Testament that's what the early church did. In Acts 2 it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers and all came upon every soul and, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions, belongings, distributing the proceeds to all as they had need and day by day attending the temple together. Not just week after week or month after month. It says day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Paul himself faced that same thing as he closed 1 Corinthians. In, verse, in, in chapter 16 he says, I rejoiced at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Here was the apostle Paul saying other believers there at Corinth had exhorted him and encouraged him and refreshed him. And then the writer of Hebrews says, and do this all the more as you see the day approaching. What is the day as you see the day approaching? 
Well, in the Bible, the day always referred to the day of the Lord. And in the Old Testament, oftentimes, God's people cried out for the day of the Lord to hurry up and come. And the prophet said, hang on a minute, hang on a minute. Are you sure you really want the day of the Lord to come? For, for some, that's not going to be just a day of blessing, but also a day of judgment where God cleanses his family. You sure you're ready for that? But the day of the Lord referred to that time, and the writer of Hebrews is saying here, that day is coming. Any day now, Jesus Christ might come back for his bride. You realize before I finish this sermon here today, Jesus Christ could come back for his bride. And probably some of you are convinced that he might come back before I finish this sermon. <laughs> You're beginning to think. You're beginning to think the, the chances of that are kind of growing. The day of the Lord, it's coming. It's coming. And what's going to happen in that day? In that day, some are going to stand before God and like those five foolish virgins who weren't ready and they're knocking at the door seeking entry, the bridegroom says, depart from me, I never knew you. They weren't ready. We need to be sowing the seed, preaching the gospel. Hopefully people will hear and respond and get ready. Others on the day of the Lord might find that their life's work was nothing more than wood, hay, and stubble. Others are hear, hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. But we're to stay at it. We're to stay at personal worship. We're to persevere in our own profession of faith regardless of what trials or tribulations we go through in life. And we're to persist in week to week gathering together of God's people and being an active member of the body of Christ encouraging one another, lifting one another up, praying for one another, exhorting one another all the more seeing that the day is approaching. Active engagement and involvement. We thank God for those here that just come on a Sunday morning and take up 18 inches in a pew. That's all. I'm glad you're here. But folks, that's not what he's talking about here in Hebrews 10. He's talking about this active engagement in the life of the church with brothers and sisters in the Lord having a ministry together and a common mission and together, hand in hand, doing more together than what we can do individually. And being a blessing to one another. That's what he's talking about. And again, it's commands here. It's not just suggestions. Involvement. It reminds me of the chicken and pig analogy. The chicken and pig got together in the barnyard one day and said, you know what? The chicken said, you know what? The farmer and his wife have been pretty good to us. They've been real good to us. And they're sick and suffering and going through a tough time. We ought to do something nice for them. And the pig said, well, Mr. Chicken, you know what? I agree with that. You're right. What do you suggest? 
And the chicken said, I think we ought to fix some an eggs and, and ham breakfast for in the morning. <laughs> and the pig said, now wait just a minute, Mr. Chicken. For you, that's just merely a contribution, but for me, it's real sacrifice. <laughs> What's Hebrews 10 talking about? It's talking about the pig kind of sacrifice. Would you bow your heads in prayer with me, please? I want you to remember the day is approaching. You can almost hear the hoofbeats of the four horses of the apocalypse. They're coming. The sound is growing louder and louder. Are you ready? Do you know Jesus? If not, the door is going to be shut. And the bridegroom will say, I never knew you. And it will be eternally too late. If you're not ready, I beg of you this morning, come forward. Some of our pastors here, maybe deacons, Sunday school teachers, any group of us here that want to pray with you and help you to turn your life over to Christ and be ready. If you know Christ, are you worshiping? Are, are you going boldly into God's presence through Jesus Christ? If not, why not? Perhaps today you need to say, God, I, I want to worship you every single day. Every day I want to set aside a portion of the day to come before you. Are you going through trials as believers? Hang in there. Don't give up on God. God may have something far greater on the other side of that tribulation than you ever dreamed possible. Are you stirring up your brothers and sisters in the Lord every week? Every single week, unless providentially hindered, God's people ought to be in church. Remember, it's not just about you. Those around you need you. And so perhaps this morning you need to turn away from a lax attitude about church life. You need to roll up your sleeves and get involved. This is God's work here. Be a part of God's work. Heavenly Father, let us. Let us come before you boldly. Let us persevere. And let us consider one another. In other words, help the church to be the church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.